Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Time for Bloomberg Opinion. We are joined by Bloomberg Opinion columnist Joe Nacera. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. You had a fascinating column a couple days ago talking about. You know, this whole concept of a lockdown and quarantine, this is something that we haven't necessarily done in some past epidemics uh, in this country. And I guess as people think about opening up the economy now, there's really two camps out there, those that are probably a little bit more aggressive about opening up the economy and those that are a little bit more uh, conservative. Talk to us a little bit about kind of lockdowns and how effective they've proven to be uh, in the past. Well, they've never been used in the past. <laughs> so this right. is the first time. They, they never became a, po- a sort of uh, policy, pandemic policy, until 2006, uh, when George Bush um, asked the government to come up with a pandemic plan. And the, and the scientists who came up with the lockdown idea, um, they were not infectious disease scientists. Um, uh, and there was a lot of controversy around it at the time. Uh, there have been pandemics in 1957. There was one in 1968. Of course, the famous one in 1918. Absolutely, a lot of people stayed inside because they were terrified. But there was never a uh, an official an official lockdown. So, so the answer is um, there's no there's no previous science to know what good the lockdown does. And although it makes a lot of intuitive sense that you would stay inside and therefore avoid the virus. There's a lot of downsides, as we're about to find out when the economy starts to open. Yeah, this is what people are saying, that basically we don't know how effective it is to limit the spread, and we know that it creates a lot of problems when it comes to uh, when it when it comes to the economy. That said, we are seeing a pretty strong correlation, and I know correlation is not causation, but it is becoming scientifically accepted that the economies that shut down more aggressively and more quickly were those that managed to stave off some of the worst effects of this uh, virus that we've seen in places like New York and Milan. So from that perspective, how can you dismiss that as showing the efficacy of this type of, of shutdown? Well, I don't I don't dismiss it, but you know, there's also there's mass, there's social distancing, there's the fact that eighty percent, literally eighty percent of the people who have died in this pandemic have been the elderly. You know, whether you're inside or outside. Um and then you have states like Texas and Florida, which have been very lax on lockdowns and, and their numbers uh, of deaths are extremely low. So I mean I would argue that, you know, it's really unclear as to whether the lockdown is saving a lot of lives or not. All right, wait, hold and- up one second. Right there. Where are you where where are you staying right now? I'm in Southampton. Okay, so you're not in the city, right? Correct. Okay, and my question is, let's say there were no state mandated lockdowns of any sort. Would you feel comfortable going about your business the way that you had in the past and going on the subway? Um I don't know. That's a good question. I think that I, if I, I think if I had a mask and gloves, I would. And I also think that I would probably have to. I'm also 68 years old. So I'm in the high risk group. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of, look, look, please. You know, in March, there's no question I came out to the Hamptons because I was scared. But, you know, you watch, you watch data, you watch things happening, you watch what's going to happen to the economy, and you think to yourself, you know, is this really the right way to continue to proceed? 
And one distinction that I've been making is between the hotspot states and cities like Detroit uh, and New York and New Orleans and places like Houston and Miami and San Diego, which have very, very, very few um, deaths. Yeah. Well, look, Joe, and, you raise and, a really good point. And Paul, this, I think, is a really yep. important thing. And I think that Joe... Lisa, uh, Lisa I feel like I you could... want to chop my head off. <laughs> no, no, no. I, no, no. I, I honestly... I, We're I just love jealous you're in the Hamptons. <laughs> I'm totally jealous that you're in the Hamptons. I also think this is such a politically fraught issue. And the question is of autonomy. Is. Okay. I want to talk about that. That is so right. This is the big problem here. Here's the big problem. It has become a political issue. And it's, and, and, and it's like, if my political party believes in lockdowns, then I believe in lockdowns. If my political party says lockdowns are BS, then I say that's BS. Nobody on either side is willing to just sit down and say, let's look at this with fresh eyes. Let's think about this uh, from, a, from a point of view of neutrality and science. It's not happening. Everybody on both sides says, you know, I'm following the science. I'm following the science. Well, what does that even mean <laughs> with a lockdown where, where, where there is, where the science is unclear? Yeah, it's okay, now Joe, I think, No, I think the issue here okay. right now, you know, the conversation, Joe, is just, you know, the cost of the economic cost of the lockdown versus the, the cost in lives. And that's kind of what the reopening debate seems to be evolving to. Uh, I, I think that's absolutely true. And um, uh, let, me, let, me, let me ask you this. This is kind of how I ended my column yesterday. You know, it's quite likely that the virus will will fade in the summertime uh, because that's often what happens. And then it'll probably come back with a vengeance in October. And if that happens and we're reopening the economy, are you going to say, well, let's shut everything down again for three months because yeah, it's back? I, I don't know. That's going to be I, a I, really tough. I yep. don't think... I don't think anybody's going to agree to that. I just yeah. don't think the society is going to agree to that. And I think we're going to have to learn to live with this thing with, with measures like masks and social distancing yep. <laughs> that are less severe than a lockdown. We yep. could wind up in a depression. Thanks so much for joining us. we got to run, Joe. Joe Nocera, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. It's an awesome column. Check it out on Bloomberg.com uh, slash opinion. All his great work. This is Bloomberg Markets with Lisa Abramowitz and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Well, when you listen to healthcare officials, the big, big thing right now is to continue to test for the virus and then contact trace to see, to kind of contain uh, the spread of the virus. That's certainly important now and will be even more important to the extent there's a second wave. And when you talk about the contact tracing, there's been a lot of apps uh, that people have been talking about, mostly the Apple and Google approach, kind of a joint venture there, which is really unique in and of itself, has been getting most of the press. But a startup out there has also been, they think they might have a better uh, mousetrap, and that is uh, Jared Allgood, co-founder and chief strategy officer for the firm 20. They're based in San Francisco. They've got their own app healthy together. And in fact, the state of Utah is actually adopting it. Uh, Jared, thanks so much for joining us here. Tell us about your app and why, say, a state like Utah would select your app versus an Apple Google, which would seem to be the easy choice. Yeah, good, good morning, Paul and Lisa. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, so <clears throat> Healthy Together uh, was developed to work in partnership and in conjunction with the Public Health Department of the state of Utah. Um, so they approached us uh, several weeks ago um, and saw that we had some technology that was unique for helping to augment uh, and automate certain parts of the manual contact tracing process. So we partnered with them to develop the Healthy Together application. 
um, both as a front-end application and also as back-end services and tools that we deploy back into the Department of Health. Um, so really what we've built is a way for um, residents to, uh, to help the manual uh, public health contact tracing effort um, by using an app on their phone uh, that helps the, us uh, and them identify uh, where they've been and who they've been in contact with should they uh, you know, come out positive with COVID-19. Um, so that manual contact. Oh, go ahead. No, I, I, I find this so fascinating, this idea that people are, are, are going to help the effort by volunteering to be tracked on their phones. It strikes me that the scope of data is important for this to be effective, that the greatest number of people need to be registered and tracked for this to actually prevent the virus from spreading. What's your advantage over, say, Google and Apple, who also have an app and also have the host of data and the footprint? Yeah, so something I, that I would say to that is, um, first of all, Healthy Together is more than just a contact tracing application. Um, the state of Utah's strategy is to do assessing, testing, and tracing. So the Healthy Together platform allows residents to assess themselves to find out if they should get tested for COVID-19. Uh, and then if they should, then we can refer them to you know, the nearest testing resource through the application. And so just shortening the time from somebody becoming symptomatic to getting them into the testing process and then finding out if they're positive and then quarantining themselves is a huge part of the value proposition that we've delivered uh, with the state of Utah. Now, as it pertains to contact tracing, um, our approach is actually not in opposition with the Google and Apple approach. Um, Google and Apple, are, uh, at least as we understand, are not coming out with applications. What they've built up is a set of APIs that application developers like us can integrate with to, uh, to tap into a broader network of contact tracing. Uh, and that's something that we see as a, as a huge value add. Uh, we hope to, uh, to find a way to work and partner with Apple and Google to use those APIs um, so that we can augment our current process. So you're in the state of Utah. Are there other states you're in discussions with? Yeah, of course. Look, since, um, since we released just a few weeks ago in the state of Utah, um, we've had a tremendous amount of inbound from other states uh, who are interested, uh, who are doing similar strategies in terms of standing up um, more manual contact tracing, and then looking for tools and technology to augment and expedite that process. Um, so we've had several conversations with other states. Um, we will be announcing some partnerships uh, with other states coming soon. Um, and something that's been interesting to us that you know we, we, we learned as we got into this um, is that businesses are also participating in contact tracing. Um, companies now have, uh, you know, they're feeling the pressure to bring their employees back to work. Um, and they need to do it in a safe way, and they need to communicate to their team members um, that they have a plan and a strategy for dealing with the occasion um, that somebody in their workforce uh, turns out to be positive for COVID-19. And so we're seeing um, you know, lots of interest from companies as well um, who want to implement tools and, and just figure out the way to respond to this effort using manual and technological contact tracing as well. There's a tension for anyone who's creating a business in order to uh, help facilitate the social distancing and prevention of the spread of the pandemic, how you make money at a time when you're providing a service for the social good. How does that tension get resolved with you? Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Look, um, you know, as uh, you know, as you know, um, this was not our business, um, you know, coming into this. Um, and we did not uh, raise our hand and say, you know, we want to build contact tracing and sell it to the world. Um, the state of Utah, the governor's office reached out to us and identified us as a solution. Um, and, you know, to be able to pivot our business uh, and dedicate the, the number of resources, uh, engineers, designers, product managers, um, to really build a high quality product, both in the mobile application 
and also in these back-end systems. Um, those things just cost resources to be able to do it. Um, and so our goal is to serve as many uh, you know, states uh, and enterprises as we possibly can. Um, and to do that and to scale up, uh, it, it's just going to take money for us to be able to do it. 20 co-founder Jared Allgood, thank you so much for being with us talking about his Healthy Together contact tracing app, which has been deployed by the state of Utah. This is Bloomberg Markets with Lisa Abramowitz and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Certainly a lot of news coming out of China and Hong Kong in the last 24 hours. Uh, We've seen some news here that it's... uh, you know, really, China really trying to reassert uh, some or reassert uh, more power and control over Hong Kong to get a sense of what's really going on and what it means for Hong Kong and its economy and its people. We welcome Yvonne Mann. She's the anchor for Daybreak Asia and Bloomberg Markets China Open. Uh, she's in Hong Kong. And Tom Orlick, chief economist for Bloomberg Economics on the phone from Washington, D.C. Tom spent a lot of time uh, living in, in Beijing as well. So, Yvonne, thanks so much for joining us. I want to start with you. Just give our listeners a sense of what actually actually happened between China and Hong Kong over the last 24 hours? Well, it certainly has uh, been uh, quite an interesting 24 hours, Paul. And basically what has happened is that the NPC, the National People's Congress in Beijing, decided to enact this national security law, which basically curbs secession, sedition, foreign interference, and terrorism in Hong Kong. It's also known as Article 23 here in the city, and which was legislation that has basically been stalled in the Legislative Council for for many years now, since 2003, back then when it was introduced. It fueled some widespread demonstrations. The government was then forced to scrap it. So we now see a very stronger, a much more emboldened Beijing than 17 years ago. So they're taking matters into their own hands. They're frustrated by the months of unrest that has hurt the economy. They're frustrated by lawmakers who have failed to get through this legislation. So the new strategy now from Beijing is to basically bypass legislative council here, skip the whole legislative process, and do this in their, in, from the MPC. So that's why this has stoked so much outrage from those in the pro-democracy side. Yvonne, you've done a great job of outlining this, and we thank you so much for staying so late to uh, speak with us and lay it out for us here. Tom, I'd love your perspective from an economic viewpoint. Why Beijing is doing this now against a backdrop of a pandemic and a huge hit to its economic growth? Why is it not more concerned about the loss of Hong Kong as an international center and hub for finance and beyond? Um, so I think what's what's really clear, Lisa, is that the politics is trumping the uh, is trumping the economics, um, and the uh, the national security considerations for Beijing uh, are more important uh, than any risk to Hong Kong status as a as a financial hub and a pathway for um, capital and expertise and trade uh, between uh, the mainland and the rest of the world. Uh, I think the other point to keep in mind about the the timing of this is. I mean, this is a move um, which in normal times would be expected to be controversial internationally, right? Uh, A move which would be controversial in the United States, with the United Kingdom, with its historic relationship with Hong Kong, um, with potentially some European countries as well. Um, But at this particular moment in time, the world is in crisis. Um, Domestic leaders, uh, President Trump, uh, Boris Johnson... Uh, Angela Merkel, um, they have other things on their mind, right? They're dealing with a pandemic. They're dealing with economies in uh, deep 
in deep crisis. Um, so I don't have a crystal ball into the thinking of China's leadership, but potentially this is also a moment where they can make this controversial move uh, with perhaps uh, less global repercussions than they would see in normal times. Yvonne, what is the expected response from those in China prior in Hong Kong prior to the pandemic? The protesters were consistent week after week after week in their protests. Um, what is the expectation here for this move? Well, there's already some calls uh, for people to hit the streets this weekend and the following uh, a week after as well. And we've seen the activists already hitting the streets tonight, handing out leaflets to the people in the streets, educating about them about this national security law. So uh, we have seen the anger resurfacing again, and, and potentially we are could be setting the stage for a repeat of what we saw late last year. So uh, the prospects aren't good at this moment. And it, it just seems like at this point, uh, from, from the opposition side, they believe that by bypassing legislative process, that this is the end of one country, two systems. This is the end of Hong Kong's autonomy. So it's hard to see that this national security law could actually end the, the unrest out there. Even Carrie Lam, the chief executive herself, said tonight that she doesn't expect protests to end amid this security law. And if anything, it's, it's only fueled more anger on the streets, especially now that this, this outbreak under the coronavirus has eased a bit here in the city. It's, it's calmed down in terms of the numbers of local infections has been down for the last couple of weeks now. That's given a little more comfort for people to come out again, too. Yvonne, I'm just wondering, from your perspective, I saw that real estate stocks got hit the hardest in Hong Kong. I'm wondering how much you're seeing anecdotally or from data perspectives, foreign money and local money going out of the property sector in Hong Kong. Yeah, that certainly was a concern uh, late last year when when you were hearing people saying that they were pulling money out of Hong Kong and moving it to Singapore, for example. There's a lot of questions of whether Hong Kong's status as an international finance hub is now under question. Uh, and so markets really took this by surprise, the fact that the MPC, we heard this type of legislation. Um, you know, at this point, we haven't seen a whole lot of, of those concerns or at least that type of movement just yet. But What's different now versus, say, back in 2008 and what led to Hong Kong, I should say SARS, not 2008, was that what led to a revival in the economy was the fact that they opened up the borders for mainland tourists to come. That essentially gave it a V-shaped recovery here in Hong Kong. Now that we're in a recession, a lot of economists say it's unlikely we're going to see that quick of a bounce back in the economy because we have seen the mainland tourist arrivals dwindle. In fact, I think they're, they're in the single digits at most. So, and given the anti-China sentiment there is in the streets there, you can't exactly rely on Chinese tourists to revive the economy anymore. And they were key buyers in the property market as well. So potentially we could see uh, some rupture there in, in the property market. Um, we haven't seen a whole lot of it just yet. It's actually been still quite stable at this point, but you know, time will tell. Tom, just real quick here, 30 seconds before we let you go. What are you looking for over the weekend as uh, Beijing has its annual powwow? So uh, we've already seen China step back from its growth target, that GDP target, which uh, set the tone, set expectations for the year. Um, They've significantly ramped up fiscal stimulus. uh, So that will provide some support to sentiment and demand 
Um, in terms of Hong Kong, uh, is, as Yvonne said, uh, I think the key thing to look for now is what's the reaction on the Hong Kong street? Does this bring a very large number of people back out to protest? And if that happens, what then are the consequences for Hong Kong markets, real estate uh, and the economy going forwards? Tom Orlick, Chief Economist for Bloomberg Economics, and Yvonne Mann, anchor of Daybreak Asia and Bloomberg Markets, uh, tried to open for Bloomberg, joining us, staying late to give us that report from Hong Kong. Definitely a, a historic seizure, rupture here between Hong Kong and Beijing, a long time in the works, yet really raising questions about why now, amid a backdrop of rising Sino-U.S. tensions. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Lisa Abramowitz and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. We've talked a lot about how passive investing is all the rage and everyone wants to go into an index fund. And yet we often fail to discuss the very active process of composing the underlying index. And that's very much in the forefront of people's minds right now as the S&P, which is the most tracked index by passive funds, goes under potentially a pretty big overhaul. Joining us now to discuss this is Nick Colas, co-founder of Datatrek Research. Uh, always great to get your thoughts, Nick. I want to start start with why the S&P may have to rejigger which companies it includes. Uh, yes, uh, the biggest reason, and you know, we see this day to day, is that there are a lot of companies uh, at the bottom end of this index in terms of market cap that have fallen way below the typical levels where the S&P committee begins to think about uh, replacing them. So, for example, Harley-Davidson, $3 billion market cap, uh, Gap Stores, about $3.5 billion market cap. That's well below the 5 to $8 billion. The committee tends to think about in terms of taking companies out of the index and replacing them with new ones. And it's a function of all the, the issues of the COVID crisis that we've seen in terms of how different companies are, are doing versus others. So, Nick, is the S&P, the, the committee there that looks at some of these companies, are they trying to give some of these companies the benefit of the doubt in, turn, in a sense that, hey, this is really related to this pandemic and the pandemic uh, is, we think, it will be a relatively short-lived issue. And then once we get to the other side of this, these stocks will rebound? You know, that, that has to be part of their calculus because one virtue of the 500 is that it is pretty sticky. You only see 20 to 30 changes in the index a year, and they try to maintain a very low portfolio turnover because that's one of the advantages of index investing is not having a lot of churn and transaction costs in the portfolio. But as we go through the balance of the year, some of this is going to have their, you know, force their hand. Uh, how much longer do you want to wait before some of these companies that were already in structural decline, like anybody that sells to department stores or Gap stores or Harley-Davidson, how long do you want to give them before you realize, okay, they're not going to come back in any really serious form and we got to move along? What's the reputational pressure for them? For the S&P committee? Yeah. The reputational issue is, as you said at the top, this is the most widely followed, widely indexed um, measure of U.S. stocks anywhere in the world. It is the most popular, not just here in the U.S., but everywhere, largely because it's done so well relative to any of the, say, for example, MSCI EFA, MSCI EM. You know, the SP 500 has been an absolute horse of an investment over the last 10 years, compounding at 13% annually until the, the fall off at the beginning of, of 2020, done far better than everything else. So it's really important from an indexing perspective and from a business perspective that this index continue to hold that structural advantage over every other measure of global stocks. 
So Nick, I know there are traders out there that like to kind of you know speculate on names that are going to come into the S&P 500 conversely also and also names that that will come out of the index. Are we seeing some higher volatility around some of those names? You know, it has been hard to measure. We did look at that um, for our client note. It was very hard to pick out what the volatility from the macro environment has been versus what you rightly point out is a very common kind of index ad, index um, delete kind of mentality. So hard to tell right now. But if you look at, I'm looking at the bottom 10 names in the S&P right now, Haynes Brands, Harley-Davidson, Norwegian Cruise, L Brands, PVH, FlowServe, H&R Block, Discovery, and Xerox. Those are at the very bottom of the list, all brand names, all things we know. Some of them, I would assume, are going to leave the index in the next year just because there's going to be new names that the committee wants to add. I'm struck, Nick, by a point that you made in your recent research, which I thought was really fantastic, which is this concept that, yes, people want to invest passively in broad markets, and yet the decision in how to uh, how to count that market is very subjective, the sort of active quality of index composition. What types of subjective measures does the S&P committee have to consider when deciding on some of these issues? Yeah, it's, it is to me the most fascinating point in all this because it is ultimately an active choice. You know, the committee has a very well, you know, historically, you know, very precise measure of what they want to add. There's profitability requirements, there's market cap requirements. I would kind of take the conversation a little bit different direction and just, you know, have everybody consider the fact that Tesla is not in the S&P 500, but Harley-Davidson is. Um, which to me is a central irony. And the issue is one issue. It is profitability. Tesla has not yet had a sequence of four quarters where they've strung together a profitable four-quarter trailing. They could have done it this quarter. They missed by about $124 million. And so as a result, they're not going to be an index for a while now. That's a $150 billion plus market cap company that could have been added when it was 10 or 12 or even $50 billion and added $100 billion of value to the index. And yet because of that profitability, measure, they're not, and given what's going on in the world, they're not going to be there for a while. So does that kind of suggest, Nick, that the S&P needs to rethink some of this? Uh, so you think about some of the technologies out there, you know, uh, like a Tesla, like some of the other tech companies that are just huge, and they're focusing more on market share gains than uh, profitability, and the market seems to be okay with that and rewarding that. So should not a name like Tesla be in there? It absolutely should be. But I understand the committee's tension because for every Tesla, there's an Uber or a Lyft. Right. Where if you had added those, you know, it would not have had the same results. You got to take the good with the bad. In the end, you know, the S&P committee may one day decide, okay, let's add an ESG overlay to some of our decision making. And if a company is clearly relevant from, say, an E standpoint, then it should have some weight against the lack of profitability. But the committee's not there yet. And these are things that take a long time to develop. But I think they're going to have to get there. Just real quick, Nick, I wonder how much the reconsideration here of the S&P committee comes on the heels of NASDAQ's success. Is that part of it? You know, that is definitely a part of it. And I would also say, look at, for example, what the Hong Kong, um, the Hang Seng is thinking about in terms of adding some Chinese companies purely based on whether or not they have enough stock listed in Hong Kong. The Hang Seng is a big property and bank index, and that's not really where the world is going. So I think every index provider and every exchange is thinking about how do we pull things into something that we can index because the world has gone so passive and it's become a much more important conversation. 
Hey, Nick, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate you taking some time here before the three-day weekend. Nick Colas, co-founder, Data Trek Research, giving us a, some always some interesting food for thought, Lisa, and that is, you know, kind of looking at that S&P 500, the components of the S&P 500, and Nick brought up a great point that Harley-Davidson with a $5 billion market cap is in there, but uh, Tesla is not. Yeah, but how do you even determine who the winners and the losers are going to be in this environment when you've got no forward guidance, you have such an uncertain backdrop, it becomes a very difficult decision to make for the longer term. Yeah, it really does. And I think, uh, as Nick was suggesting, the S&P committee favors some stability and stability and profitability. So, but interesting to see how that plays out. For Lisa Abramowitz, I'm Paul Sweeney. That does it for Bloomberg Markets for this week. Enjoy the weekend. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.